Petersfield's Shine Radio. Hello, I'm Claire Venice. And I'm Joff Lacey. We're gazing at stars. In our dark sky. In this week's Peapod. If you love Petersfield. I love the square. The hangers. The open air swimming pool. Lots of fun shops. Then the Peapod loves you. It's just a nice town. Everything Petersfield is in the Peapod. With Claire Venice and Joff Lacey. Welcome to the Peapod. Thank you for joining us. This week's Peapod comes from the Clanfield Observatory as we learn more about this interesting astronomical place and all it has to offer. We find out about the dark skies area we live in, the history of the observatory, what you can see in the sky this time of year and more from members of the Hampshire Astronomical Group. Your latest local news comes from John Walker at the Petersville Post and Susie laments on her wild walk. The P stands for Petersfield. I can't believe that we live in such a idyllic place. The Peapod. Hello, Claire. How are you? Hi, Joff. I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. We're doing something a little bit different this week. We are. We've recorded all our links inside, mm-hmm. but because we're uh, doing all things dark skies, we've come to do our crosstalk outside. I thought it was appropriate. Although... <laughs> Unfortunately, it's quite a cloudy evening, so I can't see one single star, can you? No, so we're um, just outside Clanfield at the Clanfield Observatory. You can see lots of streetlights, but no stars. No. Quite disappointing, though, Claire. Real shame, because I imagine it must be pretty spectacular up here. Yes. When it is a clear night, and it's got a great atmosphere up here as well. A little bit spooky. A little bit spooky. A bit scared driving home, but there we go. (laughs) Hopefully there'll be no deer. So, Claire, what's your experiences around stargazing? Well, I'm very lucky where I live in that just going out the back door and into the garden, sometimes on a clear night, it's absolutely breathtaking. We don't have any streetlights where we live, so it's quite, quite dark. Um, and, and it does take my breath away. I love it, actually. So, you know, even if it's a freezing cold night, sometimes I, if I pop outside, come on, guys, come and have a look. <laughs> we'll, we'll all go run outside and look up at the sky. We don't really know what we're looking at. You can see some stars are brighter than others. Sometimes the moon is, is you know, a full moon or you've got a little tiny crescent moon. But I don't know enough about it. No. I know a, a few familiar um like Orion's Belt and things like that. I think my mum might have mentioned when I was little, but I haven't taken any further than that. You, Joff, do you know a bit more about no, it? No, my knowledge is minimal. Last week, in conjunction with the Dark Skies week that's coming up on Shine Radio, we were asked to go outside and look up into the sky and record what we could see and our thoughts and feelings. I was outside with, outside with my son, and I've got to say, it was 45 seconds of complete nonsense <laughs> we said uh is it a full moon looks like a full moon might not be is that the plow don't know we are clueless would you uh, like to learn more? i would like to learn more and mm. let's say every year every summer we sit outside when it's a shooting star season and i tell you what everyone else can see dozens i've yet to see one I reckon I'm blinking at the wrong time. You probably are. <laughs> I didn't realise there was a shooting star season. Yes, I'm sure it's August, Sep- August, September. It's, um, it's about six or seven nights. Re- and so I'll have to come to yours. Yeah. We should all set up a, a nice viewing area. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lots Got of seats. Get your deck and done. Yeah. <laughs> Some binoculars, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm really looking, looking forward to finding out more about what goes on and what, what is out there. But... 
you're never going to know everything, are you? No, I can't imagine you can, but it is fascinating and it slightly boggles my mind, Joff, I'm not sure about you, but it does boggle my mind when talking about light years away and things like that. I really can't sort of grasp it. No, no, I, I could make my... I'm, I've got a feeling, Claire, I'm going to make myself look very silly in this recording. Well, hopefully we'll learn something, Joff. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have a story you'd like us to cover or would just like to say hi, please call or WhatsApp us on 01730 555 500 or email team at shineradio.uk. Coming up, we find out more about what goes on here at the Clanfield Observatory. But first, here's Joff with John Walker and your latest Petersfield news. Hello, John. Welcome to another Sunday get-together. thought we'd do something a little bit different. I've been perusing the Petersville Post, and there was a couple of stories that caught my eye. first one affected quite a few people this week is around the bins and the story around the potential new contract with North South East. Currently, my bin is still full and should have been collected Thursday. Yeah, I mean, the council admits that they haven't actually taken the contract over yet. Historically, in one of those convoluted council deals that is meant to save everybody's money and make life easier, East Hampshire District Council subcontracted their bin collection to Haven't Borough Council, who subcontracted it to a company called Norse South East, who were formed by uh, Norfolk City Council and Haven't Borough Council. So Haven't Borough Council were obviously making money out of collecting our rubbish. Funnily enough, I think it was £30 million over 10 years was the cost of the contract. Happy days all round. Feet up at the council offices of the HDC. What can we do next? Uh, But of course, if you go back even more historically, East Hampshire County Council actually employed bin men. That's what I was going to say, John. In the past, in the good old days, one might say, councils had their own bin men. They had their own people who did the roads. All these jobs that were crying out to be done, who were on hand straight away to get things sorted. It's not really moved forward, has it? Well, no, but I mean, if you go back there, yeah, and I remember we had the same bin men for years. And I remember come Christmas, they put out a little package for our bin men who were employed by the council. And you know, it all went along smoothly. But the councils these days don't want to employ anybody. They want to pay private contractors to do it for them. And what they can't seem to grasp is, yeah, they're going to save money on pensions and stuff like that. But what they don't seem to grasp is that these private companies, as in this case, haven't borough council effectively, are making money out of us, the residents. But it's, it's just councils are not supposed to make money. Which leads nicely onto the next story that caught my eye and once again the figure of 30 million pounds which you said earlier is in this story ehdc buying rams walk for 30 million around 30 million pounds in the summer of 2019 how would they have got the funds for that well Josh, you've uh, oh see this is a, i love it normal people like you and me if, if you and me tried to pull these stunts off we'd get into all sorts of trouble it's called clever accounting being smart working efficiently Basically, the government set up many years ago something called the Public Works Loans Board. This was for councils to borrow money to do projects, for example, like the Festival Hall, that sort of thing, or put a bridge over the River Rother, or pedestrianise a road, for example, those kind of things. But all these clever, clever, oh, don't you just love them, clever, councils found a little bit of a loophole. 
and they borrowed all this money from the Public Works Loans Board to buy properties to rent out to make money for the council. East Hampshire District Council had a credit overdraft, I think you call it, in the banking world, or a credit hotline, or whatever you want to call it, of 200 million with the Public Works Loans Board. And of that, they've spent about 114 million, of which 30 million is been spent on Rams Walk. And as they spent their money on these, they've got shops everywhere, all over the country, in offices, all over the country. There was a warning that rental markets go up, rental markets go down. And there's a fairly high turnover of shops in Rams Walk at the moment. I think M and Co are the latest to go. So yeah, downside of that is if it all goes pear shaped, who's going to have to pay the loan off? You and me, off in our council tax, which is fine to an extent. But we come back to that old, old thing councils are not there to make money it's like running a pub the only money you're guaranteed is the money you get over your bar i.e your council tax in the council's case and if you can't make ends meet on that then you can't do all these other fancy things that you want to do and they'll be horrified to hear it said they seem to have lost the track of where they should be but there we go that's the story of ramsworth john thank you very much mate cleared up a couple of things you take care i'll see you very soon yeah take care mate cheers the Petersall Post is out every Thursday, so please get one with your weekly shop or subscribe to the digital version. The Clanfield Observatory is one of the best equipped amateur observatories in the UK and situated in the South Downs is well placed being in a dark skies area. To tell us more about the history of the observatory is Vice Chairman of the Hampshire Astronomical Group, Steve Bosley. Hello Steve, how are you? Hi there, hello. So let's start. When did your interest in all things astronomy start? Well... I always say that I'm a sort of child of the space age. So I was born in 54. So Sputnik um, and the Apollo program were the things that really drove my interest. Uh, I then decided that I needed to do something when I went to university. And I studied astrophysics at university, which was very brave of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thought I'd love a career in there, but there weren't re- really that many careers in the subject. So I went into IT and just sort of did my thing for 30 odd years then once I took early retirement I realized there was this observatory at the top of the hill about a mile from my house and came up here with my wife and we very very quickly became members. And how long has the observatory been here? Well on this site um, it's that they first started working here in sort of I think it was about 73 but the group itself uh, was founded in 1960 and had several um, earlier incarnations in Crookhorn and Fort Nelson. But um, on one case, they wanted to uh, build houses on the site, so we were kicked out of that site, effectively. And the next one, encroachment, encroachment of too much light pollution, forced us further and further away from the, the buildings. And uh, one of our members just happened upon... He, he had a habit of happening upon. Uh, but he happened upon um, the uh, waterboard site. He approached the waterboard and just happened to get them at, just before a board meeting. And so um, at the board meeting, they said, yes, we, we wouldn't mind if you, you came and built an, a, a, a dome on our site. And it's sort of grown. The dome that we built is the large one, what's now the 24-inch dome. Uh, that was the, the first dome on the site. Um, we then subsequently added the Victorian one. One of our telescopes was a gift to the Royal Navy, and I don't think they probably knew what to do with it. We heard about it, and we offered to uh, to refurbish it if they could find us a home for it. 
Um, and it just so happened that that particular dome was about to be demolished at, uh, at Hurstminster, which then was part of the, the Royal Observatory. And so we went along there. We uh, exchanged £25, I think it was, and so became the proud owners. We had to dismantle it on site and then um, bring it up here in pieces and then build the walls here with the help of the Navy. Uh, the Navy, unfortunately, got called away on some business in the South Atlantic and so we had to finish the, the build itself and all of our members were volunteers so it, it was just uh, a brick and or so over each weekend for quite a long time uh, but this was we were talking in the early 70s um, we commissioned the first dome here I think it was in the early 80s I really have my crib shit somewhere but it, does, it doesn't really matter um, then we had a, a donation from the uh, widow of one of our members, he used to have a um, telescope in his back garden with a seven-inch dome. Um, that came uh, dome and telescope. Uh, again, we had to dismantle it in the garden in Haven't, bring it here and then um, build it again. It's interesting watching about 20 or 30 people moving a dome around manually. It's quite a physical thing <laughs> to do. Um, we've got a couple of other domes which have arrived over ver in various periods, but we, but then we keep uh, revisiting them so the the dome the big dome with 24 inch had a handmade telescope in there but it became more and more difficult to maintain it so what we did was basically gave it to somebody else and bought ourselves this research grade telescope um, cost us a fair amount and we were hoping to take about five years to uh, to get the funds for it and we managed it in about two two and a half which was quite a shock to everybody. We got a few grants from local authorities, and the local authorities around uh, have been very generous on a number of occasions. Um, we've got a, another grant to help us refurbish the 16-inch dome. Um, and what we're aiming with that is to try to um, make the hobby of astronomy more accessible to more people, especially if you're disabled or something, uh, or just old and infirm. It, if we can bring our observing online, and we haven't quite worked out what that means yet. We have, we have some ideas as to how we can most effectively do that. But that will then uh, mean that anybody can actually feel that they are part of the observing community that we have here. Very specifically, uh, my particular interest are the meter cameras. We have CCTV cameras pointing at the sky, and you'd think, well, why? Well, we're looking for any movement in the sky, and that movement includes meteors. And in an average year, we might capture about 1,500 of those. Um, we might capture about 30-odd thousand bats and lightning flashes and insects and birds and whatever. But by, by collating those with other colleagues around the country, then we can actually um, do some analysis to work out where they came from. And that has been going for about 10 years now. So we started that in 2012, so we're, we're now looking for a new generation that's less labour intensive. Steve, you very kindly gave us a little tour around when mm -hmm. we first arrived. Yes. It is a quite incredible sight up here. I didn't realise you had all this equipment up here. Um, can you explain what events you also hold up here as well? Um, the events we have, like this evening, we've got a, a sort of a public open evening, typically um, once a month, sort of the Saturday and the Sunday. We've been playing catch-up because um, we had a lot of people that were booked to come and then COVID intervened and they were very very generous rather than ask for the money back they actually said no you hang on to it and we'll come sometime 
which has actually been quite interesting <laughs> trying to find time to get those people um, into the observatory and new people that want to come along as well. So we've been very, very busy this last season particularly. Uh, we also have um, Sun Live. So in the, in the summer we have solar telescopes so we can get sort of visitors viewing the sun. We, we can use some of the telescopes with special filters, but having a, a specialist solar telescope sort of out in, in, in the sunshine is really quite nice. And the sun is actually, look, it's got a few sunspots these days. Go back two years and it, there was nothing to see. Uh, but people still want to come. They want to come and experience astronomy, which is really amazing. I suppose it's the great unknown, isn't it? That's why people are, are so interested, because yes. we don't know what we're looking at. We don't know what's out there. Most people that come here have never been before, which is really quite a surprise. And so when you can actually get them to look through a telescope and to eyeball Jupiter, you just stand back and wait for the, oh, wow, somebody is going to say it. Because it is just something that is spectacular. You can see it on TV, and yeah, NASA can give you amazing pictures. But to see it for yourself through a telescope is something pretty special. And what's the most exciting thing you've seen through your telescope? Oh, you, put, you added telescope to that sentence. <laughs> My meter cameras gave me the most exciting uh, event uh, in the last 10 years. Back in 1917 on St. Patrick's Day, we had a fireball that f uh, flew from the northwest and it went right down the diagonal of, of, of the computer screen. So the cameras caught it and it was probably the, the best capture of that event anywhere in the country. Lots of other people saw it. There was even somebody from the BBC Sky at Night who was actually on the beach filming a, a, a programme and he was facing in the wrong direction. <laughs> but, but he was able, from his experience, to look at the shadows that were cast and how sharp they were and say, well, that was at least as bright as a full moon. And it really was very, very spectacular. And the day after it hit the, the news and everybody wanted to know about it. And that can sometimes be a two-edged sword because there was one, one a few weeks ago where everyone saw something bright in the sky and I don't really think it was that bright. We got it on our cameras and to be honest, I've seen, I've seen better. Steve, thank you very much for inviting us up here. Have a great evening and thank you again. You're welcome. The P stands for Petersfield. Petersfield is special to me. The Peapod. Susie has a sweet lament on her wild walk this week at Chapel Common. Today's walk is at Chapel Common. I've risked coming back. Keen listeners will remember this was the place where our canine partner foster dog went completely AWOL before Christmas, just before Christmas, and this is the first time I've risked coming back. It's a sweet sadness, really, because he behaved immaculately and we've played ball and everything. But, as you know, they're going to shut the uh, southern training of all canine partners and so I heard yesterday that he's actually going to go up to the Midlands so um, that will be we've got two more weeks so two more wild walks um, maybe one more recording of a wild walk but anyway so that's that but earlier um, one of the sheet residents Frank Jennings who came to my book launch had invited Richard and me round to his house to see his absolutely incredible box art which you know here's the cross fertilization of shine radio that he had an exhibition when we recorded a talking books um, podcast there and um, and they're just absolutely amazing 
And what I love about them, they're not just beautiful. They're sort of, he makes his own boxes and he's got a bit of a thing going on about um, hermit crabs, obviously carrying their home with them. But he'll do witty things, like one of them looks a bit like Clint Eastwood, so there's a gun coming out of what looks like a poncho that's held aside. Um, so that, that sort of thing. But also really, really witty captions. And as someone who is entirely dreadful at captions, I can only admire it. So it's been a big week. There's... Um, that, there's Frank, there's um, the dog by that. I'm looking at you now. Um, he's being really good even while I'm recording this. He's just waiting patiently for me to throw his ball. Um, so that, Frank, obviously I'm still on a high after the book launch. Um, and if anyone wants the book, it's in One Tree Books. Go and demand it. But the other thing is, um, I've just started a very temporary post at Beedale's Library, which is a grade one listed. And I was going to do a wild walk from there, and then I sort of got qualms and thought, oh, maybe I'm not supposed to. But, um, you know, I think you can visit the library because it is a grade one listed arts and crafts building. There's one floorboard that runs the length of it, and it's long, that's so wide. It's probably as wide as my entire arm from shoulder right through to hand. Um, and that's just one oak. And I think, well, if you want a sense of what we now lack, um, it would be that. But, oh, it is just fabulous. So I'm feeling it's such a mix. And I guess, you know, I do try to share with you the whole the whole fabric um, because I think all our lives are always mixed. And what comes up must go down and what goes down must come up. So um, I hope you're in an up phase at the moment and speak soon. Have a good week. Coming up, we discover more about the Clanfield Observatory's public events and bring you the latest What's On Guide. First, though, Steve Broadbent is chairman of the Hampshire Astronomical Group and a member of the observatory instrument team, which offers training on the use of all the telescope facilities here. Steve is also a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. Hi, Steve. Hi. We're in a dark skies area. What does that actually mean? That's a good question. It means that we can see much more than you would see, for instance, uh, I live in Portsmouth, and if I look up at the night sky, I might be lucky to see a dozen stars. Here, you can see many, many more. On a good night, you can see the Milky Way, and our telescopes here enable us to see a lot fainter objects than you would be able to do if you were in a a city centre. And what can be seen in the sky at this time of year, I know it's cloudy this evening, but if it was, if it was clear, what, what would we be seeing? Well, the winter sky is, is one of the more spectacular parts of the year because we've got really bright constellations. Most people know the constellation of Orion, which has a lot of bright stars in it. We've got Sirius, which is the brightest star in the night sky, which is visible at this time of year. And in fact, the, the winter sky is much more... Uh, exciting to see with the naked eye than than the other skies in other parts of the year. So what are the most unusual stars that can be seen in the sky? Most unusual stars? Um, with a telescope or without a telescope? Ooh, bit of both. <laughs> well, there are, I mean, there are stars which you can see which are unusual in their own right. I mean, the, the big star in the shoulder of Orion called Betelgeuse 
is one of the largest stars in the sky. If you were to put it where our sun is, then all the planets up until Jupiter would be inside that star, and Jupiter would be sort of skirting around the edge. It's believed to be about 900 times the size of the sun. So that's one of the spectacular stars. But, um, you know, all stars are different in their own right. So, uh, you know... Yeah, well, you mentioned galaxies. Now, I'm a complete novice. I admitted earlier that I know very little. Galaxies. How do you spot a galaxy? How do you spot a galaxy? Um, well, the brightest galaxy that you can see, which is just about visible to the naked eye, if you've got good eyesight and it's a really clear night and you know exactly where to look, is the Andromeda galaxy, which is the nearest galaxy outside of our Milky Way. And um, it is very, very faint, but it's very, very large in the sky. And unfortunately, we can only see the little fuzzy faint spot, if we can, with our naked eyes. If we could see the whole galaxy, it's about six times the size of the full moon in the sky. And so with telescopes taking photographs, you can see the full extent of it. But this, um, the, the, the light from that galaxy, it's so far away that the light takes two and a half million years to get here, which is an amazing number. When you think that that's what it looked like two and a half million years ago. If you want to see what it looks like now, come back and ask me in two and a half million years' time. I can't get my head around that. I can't. I can't get really, yeah. How long have you been studying? S studying? I don't, well, I've never studied it officially. Um, I've actually got a chemistry degree, but um, as, at the age of about nine, I bought my first telescope. Um, with the help of my parents, um, which was a, a large rickety old reflector in a, in a r very rickety mount, but it got me hooked on it, because even though I lived in London at the time, Jupiter was high in the sky, and that's what inspired me to sort of do things. Um, and I started taking photographs, but of course those were in the days when you had a film camera. So I used to take the film down to the local shop to get it developed and I'd say to them please print it all it might not look as if there's anything on it but print it all anyway and sometimes they come back and say this was no good it was just a load of white spots <laughs> but in the old days where they used to put stickers on the photos where, where it was a bit blurry yes. you, yes. you, wanted, you yes. wanted to see everything I'm, you know I've been uh, keen since, since you know that sort of age constellations yes that's another word that's bandied around can you give me an entry level introduction Yes and no. <laughs> okay, constellations. These are artificial boundaries in the sky based on the traditions of ancient astronomers, mainly the Greeks, who saw their mythology in the sky. So you've got constellations like Andromeda, who was the daughter of Queen Cassiopeia and King Cepheus. And those three constellations are in the sky. She was rescued by... Um, Perseus, allegedly on the winged horse Pegasus, although that's a bit of a Hollywood interpretation. <laughs> but all these constellations are in the star sky. And the, the ancients must have had really good imagination to, 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 to look at the sky and say, oh, that looks like, or we'll annotate that to, you know, Princess Andromeda or whatever. But more modern uh, astronomers um, have formalise the boundaries of these constellations. So a constellation is like a country on Earth. It's got a definite boundary. And um, 
Subsequent to the Greeks and the Arabs, who were the, the early astronomers, um, and the Chinese, when explorers went to the south, they saw a lot more constellations, which we could never see from Europe or, or Asia. So there are a lot more. There's 88 constellations altogether. So if someone wanted to get into astronomy, what kind of books should they be looking to start reading? Um, I, I would suggest the first one would be a book with, about binocular astronomy, because start off with some simple star charts and a pair of binoculars and get, your know, get to know your way around the sky. There are some very fascinating things you can see with binoculars. You can see the Andromeda Galaxy, you can see the Orion Nebula, you can see different coloured stars very close together, double stars, which are, which are fascinating. But you really need to get to the... start with the basics. Start with a star chart and perhaps a pair of binoculars. Look at the star chart, find it in the binoculars, get to know your way around the sky. It's absolutely fascinating talking to you, Steve. We have to ask, since we've asked everybody here... What's the most exciting thing you've seen in the sky? Oh, dear, dear, dear. <laughs> I, I can tell you what inspired me. There were, there were two things that inspired me when I was very young into astronomy. One, would you believe it or not, was listening to Sputnik going over in 1957 or whenever it was, when I was quite young. And the other thing was the first time I saw Saturn through a telescope and the rings of Saturn. And those are two of the, the things that really got me fired up to, to get my interest going. Since, of course, we've got much bigger telescopes, there are lots of other things which um, are more interesting, but they're a bit more esoteric, they're a bit more obscure, if you know what I mean. And is there, is there something you haven't seen that you would like to see? A solar eclipse. There was one in August 1999, which went across Cornwall, it also went across northern France, and I went with some friends to northern France, and we saw a nice crescent sun with the moon coming across, clouded out, and then we saw the crescent sun the other side of the eclipse. <laughs> and for the quarter of an hour around the eclipse, everything went dark, clouds on the sky. Oh. So I've had one chance so far, and I've missed it. But that, that would be my... That would be number one on my bucket list of ast astronomy things. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. Have a lovely evening. Thank you very much. The Peapod Events Guide. What's on in the Petersphere? On Friday the 17th of February, there will be gin in the gallery at the Petersfield Museum from 7.30 until 9pm. Discover the historical links between Petersfield and gin before sampling some locally distilled gin from the Hogmore Distillery. Over 18s only and tickets are £15 each. On Saturday the 18th of February, the Phoenix Theatre and Arts Centre hosts a production of Hans Christian Andersen's Ugly Duckling and Other Tales. With two afternoon showings, go to the theatre's website for more details. Wednesday the 22nd of February sees the Petersfield Museum present Murder on Your Doorstep as Portsmouth mystery novelist William Sutton offers a workshop to help you write your own mystery. The workshop costs £20 and the museum website has more information. There's a screening of the comedy drama Fisherman's Friends, One and All, at the Phoenix Theatre and Arts Centre on Wednesday the 22nd of February from 7.30pm. And a screening of Pulp Fiction at the Cube in Borden on Thursday the 23rd of February. The film starts at 8pm with tickets costing £12. If you'd rather stay in, there's always your local radio station, Shine Radio, to listen to. Available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can listen to February's edition of Growing Together with Claire and Steve at the Adhurst Allotment. This month they're joined by local tree expert Phil Paolo and find out about Houseplant Takeover at RHS Wisley. 
You can listen to Growing Together and more at shineradio.uk, bringing you also a brighter mix of great music, local news and information. If you're running an event, get it in the guide at shineradio.uk. There's a lot of excitement here as preparations get underway for the public evening event. Joining us now with all the know-how about what can be seen this evening and how to view the sky at night is John Tarling. Hi, John. Hello. So what can we expect this evening we're at going, the open event? We're going to expect lots of cloud tonight. <laughs> we, we normally hold these events several times a month and we're always at the mercy of the English weather. Unfortunately, tonight is cloudy. However, tonight, if it was clear, we would probably be looking at planets such as Mars and Jupiter. They're both visible, especially Mars. Um, we look at some deep sky objects, um, probably some globular clusters. We definitely try and get some nebula in and one or two galaxies as well. That's gone right over my head. <laughs> globular. So let's start with that. A globular cluster. Right, a globular cluster. If you can imagine um, lots of stars, maybe a couple of hundred thousand or maybe a million or so stars, and they're all tightly packed close to each other under their own mutual gravity. So you can almost regard them as miniature galaxies. And to us, when we look at them through a telescope, they look like globular-shaped clusters of stars. Yeah, very, very densely packed together. And if you can get the right power on the telescope, you can actually start to resolve the stars. Otherwise, they tend to look like little round smudgy patches. Which is probably what we see in our gardens when we're stood, outsi- stood yeah. outside. Mm-hmm. How deep do you look into the sky? How far do you go... In. To the sky. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a common question people ask me. They say, "How far can you see with a telescope?" And I always say, "Well, we can see the Battenball Pub <laughs> on the on the." On, but no. Um, well, first of all, we can see most planets inside our solar system. So we're talking up to sort of like tens, hundreds of of, of uh, millions of miles. Um, most of the more common objects are in such as nebula and globular clusters, so sort of like moving out to sort of thousands of light years, typically inside our galaxy. Um, but then we'll also look at other uh, galaxies, so then you go up to sort of like 50, 100, 150 million light years. Those are the sort of distances we'd look at. So if someone listening to this wants to start... What would you suggest? So going into the garden with a binoculars or a telescope? Mm. I would say a lot of people, especially at open evenings, they say they're thinking about astronomy. What sort of telescope should they start with? And I say don't. Don't rush and buy a, buy, go out and buy a telescope because there's lots and lots of different types of telescopes. And telescopes can be ranged in a whole range of sizes and designs. And they're all can be designed to do slightly different things. Some telescopes are good. They're very portable. You, carry, you can almost carry them in a rucksack. Um, other telescopes are probably better for looking at planets or the moon, or there are different other types of telescopes that are probably better at looking for nebula and galaxies. So you shouldn't rush to buy, go out and buy a telescope because you probably won't get a telescope that does it all. You can't right. do that. I normally advise people, I say to get started, a pair of binoculars, and it could be a cheap pair of binoculars for a brand, in a £50 price range. That can be handheld comfortably. But before you do that, or at the same time, I also suggest to people is to learn the night sky using your own eyes, the naked eye. Just learn the constellations, learn all the asterisms. And it's very handy because when you do that, you can then navigate around the sky. So, for example, tonight I would say to you that Mars is in Taurus. And if you knew where Taurus was, you'd be able to find Mars. And it's quite satisfying knowing your way around the night sky and being able to navigate correctly. That's great advice. 
John, finally, what's the most exciting thing that you've viewed in the sky? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, that's a good one, that. Uh, What's the most exciting thing I've viewed? Um, I think there's... I haven't got a sort of a list or a top ten list. I haven't got a thing that springs to mind. But I have got an image that I took approximately four years ago and it was done using our 24-inch telescope and I was trying to capture a comet called Borisov. It was an interstellar comet. It was quite famous a few years back. And because I probably wasn't concentrating that night, actually it was at about 5 o'clock in the morning I was trying to do it, I wasn't concentrating, um, I never actually found the comet. But when I finished processing my image, I ended up with a small white smudge of something and I've got no idea what it is. Um, a friend of mine's looked at it and he submitted it to the um, the Minor Planet Centre data and he says, don't know what it is, it could be an, ar- an artefact produced by the optics. But that's my favourite image because I've got an image of something that I don't know what it is. <laughs> it's unidentified. John, thank you very much for joining us. Have a lovely evening and yeah. all the very best. Pleasure. Thank you, thank for, you, thank you very much. Thank you. The P stands for Petersfield. It's a lovely area, lovely people, lovely atmosphere. The P Pod. We're getting closer to the start of the evening and we're now joined by Sarah, one of the volunteers. Sarah, tell us your involvement with the group. Well, my involvement with this group is that I've retired from London and I happened upon this group in the local paper. And they said, well, it's members evening, come up. So I came up that day. And you know how your life changes from one day to the next? Well, that was one of the changes. And so having been an art historian, uh, who has not gotten physics A-level, <laughs> or indeed maths, I, but there's a lot of us here in the club. And we, it's so wonderful to have the, a shared culture, if you like, the two cultures coming together, the science-based people and the arts-based people. So as I was always in education and communication... You can imagine that's where I feel safest. I really enjoy working with groups in, for example, the five inch on the moon, because I know safe enough about the moon. And the wow, as Steve described, is, is truly wonderful. And so I've worked out a way, when you've got kids there, you say, right, how far have you come? And so I, I've made a list of the width of certain craters on the moon and how deep their walls are. And then London to Portsmouth and like Clanfield to Brighton, whatever, you know, and the distances that might make sense to a family or some of the kids. And I say, right, that crater you're looking at is actually that as wide as from here to London, all the way up the A3. So I like to bring it home in a way because I believe you can't talk about everything, but you can make them excited and curious to find out. Did it surprise you how easy it was to understand what you were looking at and, and to explain well, to people what you Well, yes, because we have a wonderful system here of, A, we get trained on every telescope, and then you become a trainer eventually, possibly some of you, but we also have members' talks and we share our knowledge. So people like me stick safely to history of astronomy talks, you know, ancient Chinese stuff and ancient Egyptian stuff, but it's where we've come from. And so it's all part of the group picture, and people say they really like the historical stuff as well as the cutting-edge stuff. So it's really exciting that we bring our different strands of knowledge together. Yeah, so it's great fun, and organising outreach and public events, the talks in the hall we had last night, 70 people. But I have to say, we sell out faster than Glastonbury. (laughs) Well, because we've only got 38 tickets. (laughs) Sarah, thank you very much for joining us, and have a lovely evening. Thank Thank you. 
And that's it for this week's Peapod. Thank you for joining us. Thanks also to our guests, Steve Bosley, Steve Broadbent, John Tarling and Sarah, who we also spoke to. John Walker, Susie Wilde, our editor M. Sefton-Smith and the Shine Radio team. So from Joff and I this week, bye. bye! What was the rival to the VHS video format? Which author predicted the Apollo moon landing? Who became the youngest winner of the Wimbledon men's singles title? Petersfield's Shine Radio with Ian Crossman. I have quiz questions on all sorts of topics for you to test your general knowledge and see if you can score the magical five out of five. The Brighter Minds Quiz is proudly supported by Church's College. Every Saturday and Sunday night from nine. Petersfield's Shine Radio. Radio.